I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Back to School Bumper episode of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by writers Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Welcome back to The Hilo, homies. The last days of summer are over. We both had a wonderful month off, which already slightly feels like it never happened, but we're both trying to hold on to that feeling of restedness. I did miss the high-low on occasions, like when the Asia Argento story broke, and also I miss being able to talk about the loss of silly season with all the Corbyn anti-Semitism rows, the cutting-edge stories like stray cows being found in hot tubs were just hacked off the front page in <laughs> August. They were just hacked. I um, had exactly the same feeling where I was like, oh, God, I missed the high-low. Uh, when Theresa May did that little robot-y dance, I found myself feeling very very impassioned and opinionated about it and I get trying to engage everyone in conversations about it. It's too much to see politicians like in their downtime. I almost can't, I can't even cope. I just felt enormous sympathy for her. I never thought Me I too. would say I have no I think a lot of people did actually. May, but I really, really did. I just feel like how many English people do you know that would stand up in front of an entirely different culture and in the middle of the day when they're dancing so beautifully, completely sober, try and join in and not look like a total fucking twat. I just feel so bad. <laughs> it just felt awful. That is the first and last time I'll feel awful for Theresa May. It might not be the last. <laughs> Maybe, she not. Maybe she'll, Maybe she'll do dance. the worm. We want to dedicate today's podcast to Rachel Bland, the podcast co-host of You, Me and the Big C, a brilliant podcast about cancer, and the BBC presenter who very sadly died from breast cancer this week. Our thoughts are with Rachel's family. Lots of stuff in the mailbag from our time off. Dolly, kick us off. We had another email from one of our beloved listeners who wrote to us earlier this year with the subject title Millennial Grief, which I'm sure many of you will remember. She was grieving the loss of a parent and found herself a little bit lost with who to talk to and... No uh, support networks in place. Yeah, with with people her age um, going through similar things and... um, she asked for anyone to write in who were going through similar experiences. Maybe they could kind of provide each other with a sense of solidarity or advice or, or just a kind of space to talk. So we forwarded her all the emails from other women who had experienced uh, grief um, around the same age as her. And she just went and created something so awesome. So this is her email. I sent a big email out to everyone who wrote in and arranged a first proper big meetup last Tuesday. We wanted to take a picture to send to you. I think it was a wonderful night with a real sense of solidarity and I feel like everyone got something out of it which I'm thrilled about. I'll be trying to organise more in the coming months as there was a lot of interest. I thought you might like to see what came of it all. We opened the picture she'd attached of herself with about 20 women and Pandora and I opened it and promptly both just burst into tears. 
I did. I couldn't believe it. It mm. was just brilliant. She's actually set up a dedicated email address um, for these meetups and this kind of space of support, which is millennialgrief at fastmail.com. So do email her if you've lost a parent or if you've experienced grief and you would like to meet up. We also had a letter from Kerry about the death of Sinead McNamara, which is very sad and we thought very important because it says a lot about the really troubling way in which we treat humans on the internet and social media. And as we record this, actually, it's still kind of breaking news on the BBC and various other news websites around the world. Dear Pandora and Dolly, I'm sure you've both seen the recent news stories about the death of young Australian Instagram influencer Sinead McNamara. The 20-year-old was working as staff on a billionaire super yacht when she was found unconscious on the deck of the boat and later died en route to hospital. I don't know this girl at all, but being a nosy human, I visited her Instagram page. I don't know why we do things like that as human beings. Years ago, deaths and funerals were completely private affairs, but now everything is on show and we can't help but take a quick peek into someone else's recently ended life. So I guess you could say there's an issue right there in itself. But it wasn't my own nosiness that shocked me, nor was it the outpourings of grief and sadness from her friends and family. No, what has shocked, horrified and chilled me to the core is the trolling that has rampantly taken over her personal Instagram account. This girl, this young girl, who by all accounts looks vivacious, fun, happy and glowing, is being called a prostitute, a slut, an escort, a hoe, sociopathic, disgusting, cheap, a loser, a leech, to name a few. There is speculation that she was in a relationship with the boat owner, that she was involved with drugs, that she was part of a prostitution ring and all this speculation is from people who have never met seen talked or even known her and all i can think is this is someone's daughter sister best friend colleague student lover ex-lover acquaintance one day when they feel strong enough her friends and family will go to her instagram account to reminisce over photos of her when she was alive living her well and loving life and they'll be greeted by the most horrific words comments name calling and downright revolting behavior i've ever laid eyes on i cannot believe how wrong this instagram death trolling situation really is i'm sure Sinead mcnamara is not the only person to have been trolled and abused after the global publicizing of their death Thank you, Kerry, for such a thoughtful email. I find this just jaw-droppingly cruel and disrespectful, obviously. There is always much worry and kind of uh, discussion about what will happen to these virtual tombs that so many of us will leave behind as, as an online presence. But what is more worrying is the way that we've managed to remove the human from a human's online life to such an extent that you can see such prolific heartlessness. I wanted to read this out because I feel a bit despairing of social media this week. And yes, that does make me question and reframe my own relationship with it constantly, in fact. I read the email about Sinead shortly after I'd gone tits deep into the comments section of a British Instagram influencer named Scarlett Dixon, who was slammed this week, as they call it in the tabloids for a Listerine ad. The picture went viral after a Twitter user named Nathan shared the picture on Twitter with a caption, fuck off, this is anybody's normal morning. Instagram is a ridiculous lie factory made to make us all feel inadequate. And on it went the retweeted caption being written and rewritten, the very essence, in fact, of a meme. And some of it is quite funny. The ad is very extra. What does that mean? Extra means like... OTT? How would you say CJ if someone says something's really extra? Not familiar? My God, someone called me extra recently. I I thought it was a compliment. (laughs) Is it not? (laughs) It can be. I think it can be both. I think like, oh my God, you're so extra. Could be like you're very flames. 
you're lit, you're on fire. I don't know what any of these phrases <laughs> mean. But it could also mean like, oh, mate, that's too much. It will be that one. <laughs> well, not. <laughs> anyway, the ad is very extra in the non-dolly way. Okay. Um, the girl is perched on her bed, surrounded by heart-shaped balloons with a plate of pancakes made out of tacos, a cup of tea, which is an empty cup, and a full face of makeup and teased hair. In the corner is a tiny bottle of Listerine and the caption is all about waking up and feeling your best hashtag Listerine hashtag ad is this Instagram reality quote unquote at its best yes it's a farcical scene it never should have got signed off by the brand it's it's asking for the piss to be taken out of it but the comments are horrendous she's had death threats for merely pretending a taco is a pancake and purchasing a single use heart balloon have you seen the image Dolly no it's 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 very filtered. I can see why it kind of went viral on, on Twitter where people tend to kind of, you know, get a bit more cynical. It, it, Twitter plays a different role, as we know, than, than Instagram. Have you seen the Gillette girls from the 1980s? Do you know what I mean? This is how advertising works. I think it's because it comes under the guise of, like, being girl next door and real women and people just can't... The, the, there's a blurred line and there is an innate responsibility if you have a platform. We talk so much about authenticity in this day and age and actually that's fucking ironic as we're living in the most artificial, augmented age of all time. But death threats, if you think someone is daft or pointless, why not just unfollow them? Is it pervasive, this kind of perfection? Yes. Does the micro, so a fake taco is a pancake, perfect skin because of her foundation. You know, does the micro make a teenage girl feel bland in the morning, leading to the macro, low self-esteem, depression, anxiety? Yes, Mm. it's cumulative. Mm. But is she one singular 24-year-old Instagram influencer with a, you know, a daft penchant for tacos as pancakes and filtered clouds? Is she the representation of all of this? No, she's not. I totally agree. And I also don't know about this notion of responsibility thing. You know, more and more I think about it, it makes me feel uncomfortable, particularly when it comes to influencers or writers or pop stars or models. I've changed my mind on this subject quite a lot as I've got older. And I'm aware I may change my mind again, particularly maybe if I have children one day, I would change my mind again. But at the moment, my thoughts are... I think they have the same moral responsibility as any human, which is not to abuse their position, not to inflict hurt, not to steal, be dangerously fraudulent, or not be transparent when it comes to things like ads and how they're receiving money. But other than that, I just don't think they owe us anything, really. They're not politicians. They're not national representatives. They're not self-elected representatives for ethics. They don't shape legislation. I think if they want to be a bit of a dick, that's fine. As you said, you can just unfollow them or not read their work or listen to their music. And most people will think they're a dick anyway. Also, the question of responsibility then becomes such a complicated one because this responsibility is to whom? That's the uh, picture for you. I just really don't think that's that bad, that picture. I really don't. I do I quite enjoy that she has hysterical. got a picture of her own self on her blanket, though. Poor woman. She was like, oh, my God, it was a joke present from a friend. Someone in the Instagram was like, oh, she's even got... Listen, I think it's interesting what you say about responsibility. I asked myself that question recently, actually. I wrote something for um, Man Repeller where I wondered how much I owed people of my personal life as a journalist and reluctant influencer and my editor Leandra replied um I'm intrigued by your sense of indebtedness yes and if you are in if you are in debt with this 
total unveiling of everything in your life? Do we all choose the one demographic or person we have to be totally responsible for and how they behave and what they think? It's the elusive follower, isn't it? Yeah, or do, or do we take responsibility for every single person? I'm not encouraging a sort of anarchy where everyone in a position of power does whatever they want all the time with no thought of repercussions. But I also think we have to be wary of sort of foisting so much accountability for universal consciousness onto every single person in the public eye. Some people will make change and some people won't. Some people create work that has an impact on thought and some people don't. Some people eat taco pancakes. I don't think she was eating them, doll. That's the point. I still don't even know what they are. And some people are Malala. That's fine. The story of Sinead is obviously far more tragic and depressing than um, Scarlett and of course very different. As a side note, I happen to think that you should be able to nominate a friend or family member when you sign up to Instagram who can then sort of log in and detonate your account if anything happens to you. I wouldn't want my Instagram existing when I... You know Facebook does that now. There's yeah. a, a legacy option. That, yeah, because yeah. it used to... I th- someone took them to court. They, I mm. don't think they were allowed to shut, like loved ones um, profile mm. I read something before on social media wills and I definitely think we should all have one I'm worried that the internet is not only desensitising us but actually eroding empathy entirely and that you can also be these kind of completely dual human beings where in real life you're empathetic but then suddenly like on the internet like something like flips something mm. switches off I mean Scarlett herself said at the centre of every viral storm there's a human being yeah, and I think that's the, that is the most concerning thread throughout these stories. I need to write my will and I'm going to include social media and passwords in the event of me being hit by a bus so that everything can be deleted. Can I have all the uh, really nice uh, pictures of your interiors? Can I, can you write, can I own those? <laughs> you can download them in the event of my death before it detonates. I can you make, can detonate yeah. it for me. I can make them my desktop background. Please leave them to me in your will. <laughs> In the case of Listerine Blogger, there's a lesson to be learned for sure. Using Instagram as a highlight reel is one thing. I certainly do that. But let's not create fairy tales of perfection and call it normality. In the Sinead McNamara case, there's nothing to learn for me. She's a passive victim of trolls. All All this teaches me is that human beings are darker inside than I even thought possible. And the problem when we talk about trolls is it's very easy to be a troll. I don't believe that all the people writing terrible things on the internet are awful people in real lives. Trolls are not just like trolls trolls are also like completely normal people off the internet and that's actually more worrying it's normal otherwise nice people the internet abdicates not only responsibility but empathy also i just think the people that who don't understand that the internet and particularly social media is a highly curated semi-selection of a person's reality i just don't think they should be on social media perhaps it's something that in all seriousness needs to be taught in schools in the same way that safe safe drinking is taught in schools safe sex is taught in schools you learn about safe driving maybe we all need to be told from a really young age that this is not a reality we don't all owe each other these sort of gritty or messy or heartbreaking or sad or grotty pieces of evidence of our own sadness or failure to counteract our moments of joy or achievements or just lovely things we're interested in i think it's super helpful if people are in a healthy place and they want to do that and they want to reveal that of themselves i think that's really really helpful great for online culture certainly it tempers all the other incredibly edited stuff but i don't think anyone should be forced into showing realness of their private life in the online world at risk of being accused of being some big fat deceitful liar mm. if they don't there are loads and loads of I really believe this. I often look at people who are offering up these like 
incredibly intimate, sad moments of their life or stuff that they're working through online. And I worry that they're doing it. Often I think people are doing it because as a cathartic exercise and and to be helpful to, to show the truth. And I think that's wonderful. You and I both have seen moments where that's wonderful. But I think if people are doing that to protect themselves from being called a liar, I think that's really, really sad that's and so, dangerous. That's really at the genesis of what I what I just wrote is if in your drive to be honest and to share, what if giving more ends up making you feel less? Yeah. What if you manage... And also then that's not truthful <laughs> because you don't want to give it. There are loads... So, you know, you have to think self-preservation, don't you? Yeah, and also there are loads and loads of places you can find out about people's real lives. Go watch a documentary, go talk to your friends, go ring your mum, go watch the news. Like, Instagram is not one of those places. And if you really need for survival and for self-preservation to avoid those highly curated, very boastful lives, I totally, truly understand but don't go on Instagram. Yeah, I mean, Clemmie Hooper said account. that recently on Instagram. Treat it like your magazine. You know, flip the page on something you don't like. Pick up the magazine that you like. I think that's what the worrying thing is here, is that instead of just walking away from, I don't know, an account they don't like or a girl that they think had a shady death on a yacht and what does that say about her? Yeah. Like, why do you care? Yeah. Put that energy, as you say, into reading the fucking news. Or, or also, like, if, if people are making you feel bad about yourself, be it someone boasting about their life or your ex-boyfriend or whatever, like, just unfollow it. The picture's a bit daft. Maybe the account's a bit daft. I don't mean that patronisingly, but, you know, it's not something that particularly resonates with me. But that's okay. Mm. That doesn't bother me that it doesn't resonate with me. Mm. Of course, I think that there is a larger story to be told about this whole Instagram perfection thing. And I do worry about teenage girls growing exactly. up. Exactly. Yes, but there that- is always something we can worry about with teenage girls 15 years ago it was probably that they all smoked now they're all health conscious and obsessed with instagram there will always be a cultural agenda and that is a good thing because we should always be looking to improve society yes exactly and i think we're still learning how to educate people about about these truths and and boundaries and self-protection with social media which i hope the generation below us and future generations will understand but also People have been outwardly presenting a glossy version of who they are or what their day-to-day life is for many, many, many years, like thousands of years. I don't think, like, Elizabeth Taylor got slammed on the red carpet for, like, not looking real. Yeah, or doing some enormous glossy shoot of look inside my home. This is not a brand new issue. It's far more prolific, definitely, and it's far more accessible. But, you know... This is offering up your best self is is literally like a survival technique. I, I think it's quite a natural inclination, of it's and a I think I think we have to monitor it. And I think, but I really don't think that the people that who who do it are evil. I think they're often boastful or insensitive or insecure, but I don't think that they're fundamentally evil. I think it's like it's going to get to the point where you know social social media will just be like i woke up with a spot this morning and i'm constipated you know yeah exactly exactly and like look there should be space for that share your constipation guys Instagram ranting to books. Which we much prefer. Pandora and I read so much while we were away, which was blissful. So we thought we would skip the top line and do a bumper book chat because we always are getting emails from people for more book recommendations. And um, we had both read some absolute corkers. A lot of the same stuff, which was completely unintentional, but really thrilling when we found out that Mm. we were often just tag teaming on books. Um, So why don't you kick us off, Dolly, with one that we both read and loved? 
We read Normal People by Sally Rooney. Um, This is the second book from Sally. She wrote the huge hit Conversations with Friends last year, which I read last summer and loved. Oh, to write like Sally Rooney. She's having a huge moment. This is really her time. Um, I read a big profile of her in The Guardian just last night, actually. Oh, I'd love to read that. I actually think I saw that Zadie Smith had given her a blurb for her book. Yeah. And as I was reading, I thought to myself, I really do think you're going to be the Zadie Smith of our generation. I think the way that she makes people come alive, the way she fleshes out the complications and nuances and darkness and lightness of people, um, it's just artistry to me. I don't know how she does it. I literally was like, as someone who's desperate to write fiction next... I almost like was studying because her language is so her language is so sparse as well. It's um, it's so undecorative, and normally, the the writing I love is um quite florid. Well, it's your writing actually. Your writing is exactly the kind of thing I love and extra, and it's extra, and hers is unadorned. Thanks, babe. I still love your writing. No, no, I appreciate I just love that. hers too. I actually much preferred this book to Conversation yeah, with Friends. because you weren't a huge fan no, of Conversation no, with Friends, were you? I wasn't. I thought it was very clever, but I didn't, um, I didn't feel like I really knew or liked any of the characters. And I know that we shouldn't have to like characters, especially yeah. female ones, but I need to... I need to feel hooked by them in some way. And I wasn't with Conversations with Friends. However, I did think she was a big talent. And I mean, normal people absolutely solidifies her as that in my mind. So it's about, at the centre of it, it's about a relationship um, between two people, a boy and a girl who meet at school, who are from very different social backgrounds. And um, at school, they kind of fulfil these archetypal tropes of she's this Mm. sort of weird loser and he's this... um, very kind of cool, very popular, attractive guy. And even though the book is is fairly plotless, I would say, which again, Zadie Smith admits a lot of her books are like that, her you don't you don't really miss it. I could give a shit about plot. You don't really miss it because the you're so what is so compelling are the characters and the way that they evolve and the way that and the twists and turns their relationship takes. So that just I was so hooked on this book. I was literally flipping the pages by I mean, the end to get through it. I would just it was so, so addictive. And also to me. the way that they start with Connell being cool and Marianne being uncle, and then they flip mm. roles mm. throughout their life, which was, of course, happens all the time. The cool girl at school very often isn't that cool when she's grown up. She's mm. peaked. You always hear that. And the uncle and the uncle person discovers themselves maybe in their 20s or 30s or 40s or, or, or whenever. Um, but seeing that kind of oscillation, mm. nothing was nothing was fixed. And that was in, the only thing I felt that they were fixed to was each other, which and I that was and that clever. was quite a clever device. I mean, I'm saying that in a cynical way. I'm sure it beca- it became very organically to her. But as, some, as someone who's a huge rom com fan and who studied that kind of science quite closely, that's one of the things that made it so compelling. Is it's about the push and pull between two mm. people who have this very sacred friendship and this nebulous, intangible bond that somehow she makes concrete through seeing them in all these different situations as they get older and that kind of that cat and mouse dynamic between them is it's just wonderful it's it was so 
I couldn't get enough of it. I adored them as characters, mm. Mar- Marianne and Connell. I don't even think she deliberately did this because she's not that kind of writer, but they are two of the most likable characters I've ever come across in fiction because they were so entirely honest and filled with feeling and also like such inherently good people i loved that she gave connell the chronic low level anxiety it's him that feels a bit sick and hates having sex not marianne um and i know that some people find this kind of thing dull as narrative device but i really adore books that jump through time and that quite linear like here's them now here's them but that's now. why you love them as well i think because you see them as teenagers yeah, and then you grow. grow up with them I actually love how Sally Rooney talks about writing almost as much as she um, writes. For example, um, she said recently, why are we looking to novelists for the answers about politics? Why are we fetishising the people who win literary prizes? In a recent interview with the Irish Times, she said, why do we sneer at people who don't read? She was like, who cares? My partner doesn't really read. And that really stuck with me because she's so wise and self-effacing and modest and actually a true socialist as well. And her books are definitely imbued in that sense and even now with all her success she's sitting there being like don't read if you don't want to read yeah like, I'm not saving the world I'm not doing anything I'm just reading and hoping you read it and if you don't fine well do you know what my friend interviewed her and she said that what you really get from her is this total rock solid understanding of who she is and what she stands for and as you said I think that engenders this and as she should you know because she's such an incredible mind I think and you that that is um injected throughout her work and that's why she can examine class in this book in such a fluid curious well, she, sophisticated she was, way she was at trinity and she said that that was something she was hugely interested in at trinity is seeing kind of the she was from a very like normal middle class background and she said she found like the exceptional wealth that she saw at trinity mm. coupled with obviously i mean that's connell and marianne isn't mm. it mm. but in much more interesting ways it's not like marianne's the rich girl and connell's the poor boy there's so much more nuance to that i also really like how she resists the happy ending that we all really really want because we are so in love yeah. with marianne and connell's love story because ultimately even though this book is about two people who can't stay away from each other it's actually about learning to feel free marianne and connell both have a huge amount of self hate Mm. and self-doubt and through loving one another they give each other freedom and the book shows that it is that that freedom not their love story that's the most powerful thing of all also to be bawdy for a moment can we talk about how good she is at writing about sex god it's there's a lot of there's a lot of sex but that is a skill that is such a skill it is hard to write sex. and it's and it's so interesting because at the beginning you don't really know why marianne is asking this like you know very dominating forceful type of sex and connell's very confused by it and then you get more and more of the backstory and how sad her upbringing was and how that feeds into her sense of self and what she thinks she Deserves. That's, that was my favourite thread in the book, actually. The way that... We won't spoil it, but the way that she explores through the I mean, the we spoiled it a bit, but you'll still bloody love it. <laughs> through the character of Marianne and, and her kind of sexual identity, she explores how a woman might be able to conflate um, possession and domination and suffocation with um, devotion. And that's something... I know to be very true and that's something that I have never read about in such a unjudgmental and clear and descriptive and heartbreaking way. Not only was it not the biggest theme of the book but it was um, 
there was so little commentary around it. It was mm, so sparse. Mm, exactly. You, they you only, present it. You didn't know yeah. anything until you find out that actually... And again, I think this is great. On the surface, Marianne's the one with the privileged life. Connell's the one with the underprivileged life. But actually, by the end, there's no doubt that Connell had a much safer, more privileged upbringing because privilege is not just about wealth. Mm. It's about love and how that was doled out and and the many different ways in which human beings can kind of manipulate and mm. control each other. Yeah, or that they both just experienced equal pain in, in very different In very ways. different ways. Yeah. So, absolutely loved this book um i'm gonna go on to another one that we both read how do you like me now by the she's a ya author holly Bourne. this is her first fiction for adults this one i found really interesting because it's a deceptive cover it looks very quote unquote chick litty and the title as well almost put me off but it i think it's clever because it opens itself up to a much wider audience who thinks they're getting a story that's not nearly as clever or perceptive yes. as it is. I mean, I think it's the most perceptive book I have ever read about the female interior. Mm, mm, I agree. And I think that doing it in that first-person voice of a woman who's transitioning from her 20s into her 30s in a state of sort of existential despair, um, you really do, you know, talk about what we were saying earlier about the whole Instagram thing and curated life... This is about the kind of tension between a woman who seemingly has it all and who is so adored and has this perfect online presence and then how that conflicts with the turmoil that she's in in her head. It was very powerful. So Tori is a writer who lives off a massively successful self-help book that she published five years prior about ignoring society's expectations and finding a man who helped her be free. And everywhere she goes, people adore her and she's famously working on the follow-up to that book. But she's complete, not only completely stuck, but she finds she's not living the life at all that she claimed in the first book. Her boyfriend's a dick and she's actually more susceptible to society's expectations than ever before, whether that's constantly counting calories or compulsively checking her Instagram likes. What was so interesting about the book to me is that she's painfully aware of her own duality. She knows that she's claiming to be a person that she isn't. And one really poignant bit for me is where she grabs a small tummy roll that she's named Herman and uploads it to social media under the guise of body positivity and inclusivity. But she's filtered the picture and taken it at her best angle so that Herman looks as good as possible, Mm. which is such a beautifully simple and true way to highlight the complexities and contradictions of womanhood. Yeah, and the fact that 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 Herman passage is very good because it's the fact that as we mentioned earlier, she's offering this up as a piece of truth of her life. I mean, like, I'm so happy with this. And, you know, she uses her pain and sense of inadequacy as currency. And in reality, she's not happy with it at all. She's she's in deep despair about it. And, and actually, this book couldn't have been a better book for me personally to read last month because I took a month off social media in August to sort of try and work on my relationship with it because it did need work and work out how I want to have social media in my life. And, you know, I came to a lot of conclusions, which is good. Uh, But reading that book, I think, really, really felt particularly powerful during that time when I was thinking about um, the good and the the bad that it can do to someone's daily mental health. There's a lot of social media woven through it, which is it's very it's very funny. Um, It's a lot of that kind of like quite um, 
accidentally kind of self-satisfied way in, in, in which, you know, social media can come across like a woman who's pregnant, six month bump alert, the belly's popped people, the belly has popped, hashtag blessed. And then another guy who's just got engaged, I liked it, so I put a ring on it. <laughs> and I think my favourite quote is on the background, is, is on the back of the book, where she says, turning 30 is like playing musical chairs. The music stops and everyone just marries whoever they happen to be sitting on. <laughs> On to Bitter Orange. That's one we also both read. Bitter Orange by Claire Fuller, which has had rave reviews, is a psychological thriller set in the late 60s about a woman who, for a number of reasons, hasn't really lived a full adult life despite nearing 40. She goes to a very grand, very dilapidated old manor house in the English countryside to do a very specific report on the follies, the garden follies in the grounds. And then below her is a very mysterious, very glamorous, very passionate couple. Uh, and the husband is there doing an architecture report on the building. They become very intertwined and disturbing secrets start to unfurl from their glamorous carapace. Um, I love the word carapace. I love that word. Um, and I just loved it. It was, um, I found it such a page turner. It was a real slow burn, actually, but I think that's part of the gratification for me. Um, and I, I, I don't really read thrillers. Um, so I think I forget that that pace is sort of part of the whole pleasure of it. And it's so hard to do. It's like watching the most kind of masterfully choreographed ballet. I read it in a day, uh, mainly because I found it so unsettling and disturbing and um, I was away on my own and I knew that I wouldn't be able to sleep <laughs> if I had it next to my bed and I hadn't finished it. Yeah, I get that. I'm so childish like that. I'm like Joey Tribbiani with having to put um, The Shining in the freezer. I did that with Leila Slamonic with Lullaby. I had to put it in the living room. Brand new one's just been translated. Adele it? just landed on my desk. Is that a thriller Beyond as well? Excited, yeah. Oh, I'm into thrillers. I'm gonna now. read it for read it for next next week. Yeah, I'm, I've got Bitter Orange has really got me back into thrillers. So I read it all within a day, and um, yeah, I found it a very kind of intense and nail biting and exciting experience reading it. I really didn't like Bitter Orange. Really? Yeah, I had to skim the second half. Bored oh, why not? To tears. Uh, it's read, a slow burner. I like. I, that I feel like I've read the. Actually, do you know what? I really don't want to be too rude because it's horrible being really rude about books when um, people have worked so hard on them and it's not like I've ever written one but to me it was a plot I'd read many times before Um, I didn't discover anything about the characters and I wasn't really that into the follies um, no, I love that. It, it 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 was not it was not for me at all. Actually, well, that's totally fine. You know, I think so Thanks much them. of no, it's in. I think that's I think that's totally normal because I think so much of books as well is just about atmosphere, and everything about the atmosphere of this book appealed to me. Nineteen sixties, intense and complicated couple dynamic, a sort of menage a trois, dilapidated old stately home, chamber pot, English countryside, mad old vicar. I was hooked. Picnics <laughs> by the river. <laughs> From bitter orange to little fires everywhere by Celeste Ng, which I know we both adored. 
it's it's a tough one, but I think this is my favourite book I read out of the, I don't know, 12 or 13 I've read in the last five weeks. I adored Celeste's first book, Everything I Never Told You, which was published in 2014. This is another beautifully written book about, again, the perfect family told through the lens of class and race in a small suburban community called Shaker Heights in Ohio. Eleanor and Bill Richardson and their four children are the perfect family, but their relationships are all called into question when they let their apartment to an artist named Mia and her daughter Pearl. The drama pivots around a central story, which is of a little girl named Mei Ling Chow, who's adopted by a rich white couple who've been trying to have children for 10 years. But Mei Ling's biological mother, Bibi, wants her child back. Eleanor Richardson is friends with the mother who adopted the baby. Mia works with Bibi. And so the two parties become cleaved and all these newly formed friendships, very entwined friendships. So Eleanor's youngest daughter, Izzy, is obsessed with Mia. Mia's daughter, Pearl, is friends with Eleanor's daughter and secretly dating her son, become fractured. And like everything I never told you, which begins with the death of 16-year-old Lydia and then colours in the backstory to why she died, uh, Little Fires Everywhere begins with the finale, which is the Richardson's house being burnt down by their youngest child Izzy and then tracks back to see what happened in this perfect family and what became fractured under Mm. the surface to lead them to that point and it is just the way she writes about the familial dynamic that is so brilliant Mm. of all the books this took me longest to get into but I'm so glad I did as I think it unfolded so beautifully almost cinematically in fact and the way the strands came together so so, uh, so many different ways in which they came together there was a lot of yeah very clever a lot of tentacles yeah but it was it was weaved together so perfectly and I have to say the last scene is one of the best endings to a book I think I've ever read. And I just was in awe at how she managed to kind of pull it all together and end with such a beautiful scene and kind of such a lovely metaphor. Also, I think this book is another great example of class examination. I love stories that really dig into that question of how much altruism in the middle class is actually a kind of cursory alleviation of guilt or or in fact a kind of self-aggrandizing exercise so the way that eleanor keeps the rent very low on the apartment they let out because it's her way to do good and she only lets people who stay there who she thinks are sort of struggling for a greater good like me as a struggling artist and as you say how kind of altruism can be um uh, self-aggrandizing or uh, ways to make her feel better can be dressed up in altruism because mm. she offers Mia not only her apartment a discounted rate but she says come and be our housekeeper making, yeah, it's them, all within her making them all sickeningly, sickeningly intertwined yeah. and Mia's aware that she can't say no she can't yeah. sour yeah. sour the relationship. That's, that's a really interesting complicated thing that she properly digs into I think uh, you shared an absolutely beautiful passage about parenthood that I also folded down in my book. Oh, about how your child is a place, yeah, not a person. Yeah. God, I adored that. And it's so utterly true. Here, let me find it for you. Do you want to read it out? To a parent, your child wasn't just a person. Your child was a place, a kind of Narnia, a vast eternal place where the present you were living and the past you remembered and the future you longed for all at the same time. You could see it every time you looked at her. Layered in her face was the baby she'd been and the child she'd become and the adult she would grow up to be. And you saw them all simultaneously like a 3D image. It made your head spin. It was a place you could take refuge if you knew how to get in. And each time you left it, 
Each time your child passed out of your sight, you feared you might not ever be able to return to that place again. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now moving on to The Pisces by Melissa Broder. Melissa Broder. Which I have here. I know this is really not the point, as the old proverb goes, but isn't that just the best book cover you've ever seen? <laughs> <laughs> Judge a book by its cover. Uh, of all the books that I read this summer, I think this was my absolute favourite. I did think it would be very you, that yeah. book. But your favourite out of all of them, that is an accolade, as we read some brilliant books. Yeah, really blew me away, this book. I couldn't sleep after I read it. I was so moved and unsettled by it. I have since given it out to lots of friends. And it, it really does... Um, it's a strange book. It gives. It's, there's, it really divides people, this book. Absolutely. It's about a woman who gets dumped by her long-term boyfriend and is offered a kind of very she cool house in California by the beach by her sister to house-sit while her sister and her sister's partner are away to look after the house and look after the dog and kind of reset her life and get her life back together. She gets there and her life falls apart even more. Um, after the breakup, she attempts to do online dating and as a reader, you realise, kind of as she does, she has these absolutely horrific online dates. You realise through her kind of internal world, as well as the way that she's acting out with men, that this is a woman who is an addict, who is a love and sex addict. So she goes into group therapy, which offers these kind of interludes throughout her story where she keeps returning to group therapy with all these other women suffering from uh, sex or love addiction. Some of it is very, very funny. Pandora read an extract out a few episodes ago, actually, that was kind of an unpicking of, of therapy language and particularly the word triggering, which is very funny. But it's also very, very, very sad. I found it very sad. It's about a woman who feels like um, she's basically dying from an illness that I think so many of us, to some degree, will be gripped by and feel drowned by um which is a feeling of totally cripplingly low self-esteem um a need for extraordinary escapism through sort of fake intense emotions um and i've never read about about that sort of addiction in such a real and vivid way there's a very surreal twist in the middle of it that you can see as a metaphor or you can see as sort of Wait, reality. Wait, do you think it could be a metaphor? I think I think it could be. I didn't read it as a metaphor, but I think... Well, I think they're, they're in I tandem, love that that really. just didn't... I'm so literal, that didn't even enter my mind. I just assumed that... So it's a, it's a man that she falls for, but yeah. it's like a little bit more it's got a mystical weird than twist. that. Yeah. yeah, and I gave the book to my friend Sabrina. 
having read it when we were on holiday together and about halfway through the book she was in the pool sort of lying on an inflatable flamingo reading it and I just heard her go what the fuck <laughs> and I was like right this is the point where you either stick with it or you drop off and she stuck with it and she actually loved it as well um <laughs> but yeah I think it's just phenomenally written her writing is so creative and can be so abstract and so unexpected while also being so universal and earthy and funny. And it was raw and powerful and it made me cry. Um, I'd like to read an extract from it that um, I particularly loved. I looked out at the ocean. It was as though I hadn't noticed it before or hadn't wanted to see it. I was scared of its wild ambivalence, so powerful and amorphous, like the depression itself. It didn't give a fuck about me. It could eat me without ever knowing. But now I saw each of the waves individually, one after the other, and felt them to be in rhythm with my heartbeat. They glimmered and splashed in the moonlight. Maybe the ocean was cheering for me after all. Maybe we were on the same side, comprised of the same things. Water mostly, also mystery. The ocean swallowed things up, boats, people, but it didn't look outside itself for fulfilment. It could take whatever skimmed its surface or it could leave it. In its depths already lived a whole world of who knows what. It was self-sustaining. I should be like that. It made me wonder what was inside of me. Oh, that's a lovely, a lovely passage. I loved it. And also, there are two brilliant anal sex scenes. Oh, for God's sake, you're <laughs> lowering the tone. There's oh. the worst anal sex and the best anal sex I've ever read, so it's worth buying just for that. CJ's on Amazon already, I can see him. <laughs> I think that's the end of all the books that we both read. So do you want to give us a checklist of the others that you enjoyed that I can add to my reading list? Yes, a very quick roundup of the other books that I read. I read The End of the Affair by Graham Greene, which is obviously very different in style to The Pisces, uh, but in a way covering very similar territories. It's a classic story written in 1951 about a man and a woman who live at opposite ends of a suburban common to each other. And I was desperate to work out which one it was. I think it was Wimbledon. Uh, I find this stuff, particularly as a Londoner, really, really bothers me when I'm reading. I have to work out exactly where in the city they're talking about. One of the characters is a male single novelist. And then on the other side of the common is a woman who's in a convenient but sexless marriage and the book is about an affair that they have uh, and it's written in flashbacks. Their affair is over, hence the title. It's about the pain of lost love and unrequited love and it's about how all-encompassing love can be and how it can drive you absolutely loopy. And it's written in such a kind of visceral way, you really feel such deep empathy for the characters and I always really enjoy reading about the nature of love affairs from the past because it always just feels so familiar and it just shows you that love just transcends Ageless. time exactly it's such a universal experience I'd love to read that I'm not familiar with Graham Greene's work I mean obviously I, I know who he is but I am underread in the I, I kept, GT department I kept thinking of you throughout it there's a very because of all the affairs I have because of all the affairs you have and there's a very trippy Catholic story. I just can't keep it in my pants. <laughs> trippy Catholic. Oh it's a trippy Catholic story. So I'm your trippy Catholic. That I think you'll really, really like. Uh, yeah, well, it, bring it, it me next week. I will. I will. Do you know what? It's little old penguin classic, so it's falling apart. So I'll just buy you a new one. 99p. I'm sure I can buy one. It made me really excited about discovering 
Graham Greene's writing because I haven't read him before and obviously he's such a it's great when you discover a new writer yeah. like, oh my god I've and there's like such a canon there yeah. and actually I'd love any Hilo listeners to get in touch because obviously it, it will sound ridiculous that favorite. I've just discovered Graham Greene now because I know he's no, this that, like no but that you can't I think there's this weird like misunderstanding that if you love reading you've somehow covered all the classics there's a million books I haven't read like I've never read Love in a Cold Climate, for God's sake. Mm. There's a million films I've never watched. I've never watched Casablanca. No, you're right. You're you know, right. you can't... I don't think you should be... An, like, it's a whole it's a whole massive industry. But yeah, and actually, art is, you know, should be accessible and available to everyone at any, at any given time, time yeah, in their exactly. life. So I'm excited to go back and read the Graham Greene back catalogue. So do send me any of your recommendations. I also read The Cost of Living, which was a recommendation from... Uh, my editor at Red, Natasha Lunn. It's a memoir written by Deborah Levy, who is a writer, a playwright, and it's about her marriage ending in her 50s, and it's about her moving out of her home with her husband and literally starting again with her two teenage girls, getting a flat in Highgate, I think. Again, I became obsessed with working out exactly where in North London I mean, the hill common, was that she's describing. That's a common describing. story, children grown up. Divorce, yeah. restart your life yeah. later than you thought you would. Well, yeah, and it's a story that I think is given so little coverage, mm-hmm. really, because we, we fetishise the sort of boundlessness of new beginnings with someone mm-hmm. at the beginning of their adult life. But it is just so rich in experience and pain. She is such an incredible writer. And again, she writes in quite an abstract way, but about incredibly universal emotions and something a paragraph that I'd just like to read now which made me cry this is when her mother died who is a South African woman perhaps this time of vertigo was so extreme because I'd been severed from my own origins my mother was my link to Africa and to England her body was my first landmark it was she who had raised her children and most childhood memories were twinned with her presence on earth she was my primal sat-nav, but now the screen had gone blank. Primal sat-nav? Isn't that beautiful? Well, can you lend me that one then? Yes, I will. I'll leave that with you today. <laughs> so that's a, a very beautiful book. And actually, Seriously, which is the new Statesman's culture podcast that Pandora and I both love, did a whole kind of book club episode about the book. And they interviewed Deborah Levy, which was a great sort of companion thing to listen to afterwards. I also read Cassandra at the Wedding, which was recommended to me by Laura Snapes. um, And it's so brilliant. It's completely mad. It's written by Dorothy Baker in the 1960s. And it's split into two different perspectives from a girl called Cassandra and her twin sister. And Cassandra goes home for her twin sister's wedding. And It's about sort of female rivalry. It's about feeling left behind. It's about ego. It's about the feeling of joint identity that you get when you're very close friends with a woman or, you know, you have a sisterly bond. And it really made me laugh. It's it's quite strange. The narrative voice is quite odd, but I think that is what makes it so intriguing and so funny. There are some very funny, very subtle moments of how Cassandra constantly tries to undermine her sister's marriage. Like, her family keep calling her the bride and Cassandra calls her the bride-elect to make a point that she's not yet married and she kind of constantly pretends she doesn't know the name of her sister's husband. It was just... It's it's a very uh, subtly observed 
um, and actually ultimately quite dramatic story. And it's a great examination of a female friendship, which, as everyone knows, I'm very interested in. And finally, I am very nearly done with a gorgeous book called The Outline by Rachel Cusk. And it was given to me by, by my friend Ed Cripps, my darling friend Ed, for my 30th. And I think this is such a good idea for a present for someone. He gave me just all his favourite art. So he gave me his favourite record, his favourite books of this year, his, his favourite Picasso. <laughs> his, but I just don't you think that's such a nice yeah, present lovely. to give to someone? Because now I just feel like I've got all these sort of bits of Ed's favourite I love culture that, yeah. Yeah, around my house. I love it. Um, so thank you very much, Ed. And it's about a woman who goes to Athens to teach for the summer. And it's this quite unusual format where it's 10 different stories about interactions she has with people but she never really talks about herself she just talks about the characters coming towards her and it's almost like sketches character sketches of who they are and what they say to her and what she observes about them and it's just a really interesting way of looking at character and I love the setting of Athens in that kind of intense oppressive heat as well so I'm loving that interesting I'm from how you described it I'm unsure if I'd like that I want to kind of give it a go now and oh see. I think you actually really would like it okay. well I was I will give all of those a go and then let you know tell me what you've been reading I have also been reading um crazy rich Asians by Kevin Kwan which has just been made into a major motion picture as they called it um based, everyone's mad for that book yeah ba- it's based on it's oh, such an interesting book it's um fiction based on Singapore's mega wealthy and it's the um, first Hollywood film to feature an all Asian cast. Oh my god that's insane that that's the first time. It's really interesting because most of the book and it's also very funny as a lot of kind of fiction clever witty fiction is about very very rich people but um, it focuses a lot on the nuances within a community which really reminded me of Americana in that sense of um, the differences between being um, African American and being um, a black person from Africa and how actually like they so often sort of get grouped into the same bracket, but culturally they're leagues apart. And Kwan's book very interestingly tells, in this very accessible way, but it's by no means like light and frilly, tells kind of the differences between how in um, Singapore's culture the very rich see um, people from mainland China versus Hong Kong versus Taiwan and so on. Those places all have very different identities, very different kind of like... Um, class cliches um everyone is judged on their surname how they made their wealth what clubs they belong to all of these like incredibly rich chinese billionaires all have cut glass english accents because you know they all got the right education quote unquote it's such a pacey fun and riveting read anna winter called it mordantly funny which i love you so rarely <laughs> see her name on a book jacket so i'm always my interest is peaked when i do i can't wait to see the film it's had brilliant reviews um and it has Gemma chan in it as well who is a brilliant british actor so that is a really yeah really brilliant read and definitely watch it before you go see the film i was taken aback by educated by tara westover um i almost didn't buy this book because i'd read so many interviews with her and brilliant extracts in sunday times you know the new yorker all those leading outlets did big things on her and i sort of got that thing of you know when you think god i don't know like how much more of the book is there for me to read of course the answer is always buy the book 
Educated is about a girl who grew up in rural Idaho with no education, who managed to get herself into Cambridge and Harvard through her own sheer determination. The youngest of seven children, Tara doesn't even have a birth certificate. She's never been to school and she works on the family scrapyard. Her parents are devout Mormons. They don't take painkillers. Her mother mixes up potions, which eventually make her incredibly rich, but do nothing at all for pain. She isn't allowed to expose any body part of her body. She can't drink Diet Coke. But on top of being kind of very devout Mormons, her father is also bipolar and delusional. He believes that the year 2000, so a lot of this is written about leading up to the millennium when Tara is a child, he believes that the year 2000 will be the end of days and he makes them bottle hundreds of jars of peaches ready for the second Noah's Ark where mm. the world of men will end and his family, of course, will will still be there. So he becomes more extremist than other, especially as he becomes more mentally unwell and simultaneously Tara's older brother, one of her older brothers, wreaks violence over the family. When Tara tries to confront her brother's violence and seek an education, she's forced to to leave the family. For me, the most interesting part of the book is when Tara enters the real world at university. She can't, you know, she's never really had friends because she's always just been around her family on the scrapyard and she can't abide her other housemates. Even at the first university she attends uh, near home, Brigham Young, which is a Mormon university, she doesn't feel like they're God-fearing enough. They wear Victoria's Secret sweatpants. They do stuff on a Sunday, which is a a holy day. They drink Diet Coke. And they, in turn, don't like Tara because she's used to living this semi-feral existence on the scrapyard. She only showers once a week. She never does the washing up. She refuses to wash her hands when she goes to the loo. And when she says in a history class that she's never heard of the Holocaust, her teacher thinks she's making an anti-Semitic joke and her one friend just completely abandons her. And she's so proud and so determined that she refuses to admit to anyone that she's actually got these giant gaps in her knowledge because she'd never been to school and she Mm. only started studying age 60. Eventually, the pressure of trying to reinvent herself whilst accepting no help at all leads her to have a nervous breakdown when she's at university. And this is just a story of resilience and hope, Um, just immense resilience and immense hope. And there's an incredibly sad and powerful bit where Tara realises that the only way to live the life she wants is to cut ties with her family. She tries again and again, and she's still in contact with one brother. But the rest of her family in um, Idaho, she realises that They are no longer compatible to Mm. exist in in the same loving family. And her father actually offers her the opportunity to apologise, so to take back the lies, quote-unquote, that she told about her violent brother, the mistakes she's made and, you know, leaving the church and the life she knows. But she can't take his olive branch. She says she can't subjugate herself like her sister does for her father's views, which both blind and bind her family. She can no longer compromise on who she is for the love of her family. And I'm just going to read out bit about that near the end so her father says i will offer one final time to give you a blessing the blessing was a mercy he was offering me the same terms of surrender he had offered my sister i imagined what a relief it must have been for my sister to realize she could trade her reality the one she shared with me for this how grateful she must have felt to pay such a modest price I could not judge her for her choice, but in that moment I knew I could not choose it for myself. Everything I had worked for, all my years of study, had been to purchase for myself this one privilege, to see and experience more truths than those given to me by my father, and to use those 
truths to construct my own mind. I had come to believe that the ability to evaluate many ideas, many histories, many points of views was at the heart of what it means to self-create. If I yielded now, I would lose more than an argument. I would lose custody of my own mind. This was the price I was being asked to pay. I understood that now. What my father wanted to cast from me wasn't a demon. It was me. I just got chills yeah. reading that. Yeah, yeah. You're absolutely... Love it. I'll take that with me if that's okay. Please do. Um, A couple of others that I really enjoyed. The Hunting Party by Kate Foley. For those that loved The Party by Elizabeth Day and A Secret History, sort of, you know, in the posh thriller genre, will absolutely love The Hunting Party. It's about a group of six friends who rent a um, big house in the north of Scotland and one of them is murdered. And you learn the story Ooh, of why. That sounds good. Of why and how. It's um, really, it, it's readable and brilliant. Um, I also really enjoyed Confessions of a Single Mother by Amy Nichol. This is a funny and honest and moving uh, memoir by a former celebrity journalist named Amy, who became pregnant age 24 after a fling and raised her now three-year-old son alone. Amy had a privileged middle-class upbringing and never thought she'd be a single mother in her early 20s. Um, And this book really confronts the trope of the single mother and how she is seen culturally, especially the idea that the single mother must be looking for someone to complete her family. Mm. And no, Amy says, her family is complete. I'm not looking for someone to complete me. Mm. And it's a really uplifting book. And it reminded me how lucky I am to have a partner to help raise our child and also be there you know throughout my pregnancy and my childbirth but I don't mean that in a patronizing way because this book showed that armed with resilience and and the right state of mind um, and determination you can raise a child on your tod and do not only just fine but thrive Mm. Um, I absolutely adored and I feel like I read it ages ago now because we'd literally just broken for our high-low summer break Um, this is going to hurt by Adam Kay I'd heard so much about this book. It's just an absolute bestseller. Adam is a comedian who used to be a doctor. And I think Stephen Fry was right when he called this book painfully hilarious because it's a true tragedy comedy. I mentioned before that I'd enjoyed Adam's podcast with Emma Gannon where he talks about where he used to work, Obs and Guiney being brats and twats. But it's also a, a sad read for all the madness of being a junior doctor woven through his diary entries because, yes, thank God he kept a diary, are the the constant losses of a best friend he missed his stag because of work the loss of a partner who he never sees working in a hundred now a week and basically the the almost impossibility of actually working for the nhs he eats shit he gets no sleep he feels permanently pretty low and undervalued adam was talking about the success of the book last year with the guardian he said it's because everyone knows someone who works in the nhs ergo everyone knows someone who can verify the existence yeah. of working in the NHS and how hard, hard it is I mean in a hundred hour week if you work that out that's four or five hours sleep a night everyone can relate it to someone they know the NHS employs over a million people it's such a brilliant necessary human read it's so easy to read it's absolutely hilarious it's very droll but it is no means light and actually in a way it's a pretty political book yeah I also really enjoyed A Short Affair, an anthology of short stories, my fave, edited by Simon Oldfield. There's a gorgeous short story in there by Elizabeth Day, which is very rolled, Dalian, and very witty, which I loved. And for those that love The Devil Wears Prada, Lauren Weisberger has a new book out called The Wives, which is 
pretty daft but very entertaining and I also hugely enjoyed my first Marianne Keys in a long time which I found in a basket by the pool in the hotel we were staying at called The Break it's great The Break I forgot how hilariously she writes I also love how Irish people say feck and begin every sentence with so I just love Irish people I wish I would only go back on dating apps if it was just for Irish men if anyone has that in the pipeline please let me know there must be an app people writing this week and asking us to cover the actor Roxanne Pallett's departure from Celebrity Big Brother. Bear with us snooties who are switching off at the mention of CBB. It's an interesting one this. We were actually going to cover it anyway so it's good to hear how many people had been so intrigued. Roxanne who some may recognise from Emmerdale accused fellow actor and CBB contestant Ryan Thomas who she was play fighting with of punching her repeatedly like a boxer punches a bag. Ryan was given a formal warning and was seen breaking down in the diary room apologising if he caused any harm. The footage however very clearly showed that Ryan was not punching Roxanne in the violent manner to which she accused him. The response was swift. Over 20 former co-stars of Roxanne have come forward and tweeted or given statements attesting that she was a manipulative liar and known for making substantiated accusations. Roxanne did a mea culpa interview with Jeremy Vine where she says that her history of domestic abuse has caused her to be sensitive and overreactive to situations. When shown the footage she has merely said sorry when shown the footage she has said that that is not how she remembered it and that is not how it felt. She has also quit her radio show and the pantomime that she was due to start in. So as CBB stints go It was an epic failure for her. But the real focus, of course, is that a woman accused a man of violent assault where a video camera has proved that this did not take place. This is such a sensitive and difficult thing to approach and unpack. I think we are living in a time where we are finally starting to understand how important it is to listen to a victim and to take accusations seriously. But we also have to level that with rationale and evidence without fear of being called a denier or a kind of abuse apologist i know what you mean it's a really tricky thing to unpack and it's it's an incredibly interesting time for this to have happened we are in the post me too era and of course it chimes with the shock twist to the harvey weinstein story which i'm sure many of you will have been following over august where one of the me too whistleblowers um asia argento has recently been accused herself of assaulting a teenage boy who played her son in a movie whether or not it's true shouldn't of course devalue the me too movement and the time we now find ourselves in post that movement human beings are complicated things and what can coexist and should coexist is that asia argento did a good thing helped herald the Me Too movement and potentially a very bad thing, tried to coerce a 17-year-old into having sex with her and that the good and the bad can occupy the same body. The thing is, it inevitably does do damage to the conversations we are having and it's it's frustrating to see this happen as a woman. It, it's like the babe.net story about Aziz Ansari, which a lot of people said really damaged the movement and you know muddied the waters. It's very frustrating and it's frustrating to see that during a time of real change where women are feeling able to come forward and use their voices and to be listened to, that Roxanne could have made this really damaging claim against, uh, you know, a man that hasn't done anything wrong that's only going to lead to people saying, well, look what happens when you Mm. give women too much rope. They just, you know, they hang themselves and everyone else. You know, you can just hear, you can hear those right-wing commentators. I think, as you say, the most important thing is to remember that a person can 
both do bad and have bad things happen to them. In fact, I'm sure many psychologists would say there's a reason they often exist side by side. Totally. But the other important thing, as you mentioned there, is to not let our sort of collective latent cultural misogyny use these cases as evidence to prove that, as we thought, all women are liars and hysterical, meaning that all other accusations are then thrown into doubt. Yeah, and that even when they do speak out, like Amber Heard did about Johnny Depp, it doesn't really make any difference. Of all the really productive conversations we're having about women's rights, about having autonomy over your body, about parity, about assault, violence, violence against women, as, you know... (laughs) Using violence against women as a play card to get more votes in the Celebrity Big Brother house is appalling. Using your vulnerability um, and sort of trying to bring someone else down in order to manipulate a situation. There is no question that it damages what, you know, people are fighting for. Um, But that it also left one man destroyed. And Jamelia, the former pop star, said to Roxanne on Jeremy Vine's show, which I found really interesting, what you did is an act of violence towards him. And it is, not physical, of course, but it is. It, it, it's a violently manipulative way to tear someone down. But I think we have to look beyond the very literal thing that happened there um and think about why why she did it and how it was shown and the conversations we're now having around it yeah and also i don't her abusive past is not irrelevant in this exactly at all like i i don't know if i do take it as a view as someone manipulating i haven't been watching big brother but from what i've read i don't see it as someone manipulating public opinion to well, go through, uh, through vulnerability. Maybe so, it is, but... So many other people have come forward and said that she, you know, that she is a very troubled, very unpleasant woman. So I think, I think we have... I don't think we should take that as a one-off. Um, she has played literally... The thing that disappoints me is she's played literally into, the, into that very misogynistic but archetypal trope of a pretty little actress crying her crocodile tears to twist men around her finger. And it's so, so depressing to see that on our screens or that as a trope in the media again, especially because her apology has, as Eamon Holmes said, just come across as really just a PR stunt as, as a kind of desperate attempt to mm. not lose everything in her in her showbiz life that, you know, she's worked hard for. She's obviously a troubled person, which makes me wonder why she was ever allowed to go into the Big Brother house in the first place, which is such an exposing and difficult and tumultuous place to be i mean in a way it's celebrity with brother is doing exactly what reality tv should you know this isn't structured reality reality tv holds up a mirror and shows human beings and all their complexities in a, in a startling light and it's far from light entertainment but it's revealing that the victim and the villain have literally swapped places in the in the course of an airing of some footage On leaving the house, all the evictees have been shown at the tape and the ex-footballer Jermaine Pennant told presenter Emma Willis, now I feel like a mug, that's really bad. I was sitting there saying we won't be speaking to Ryan as it was ten times worse than something else. I thought it was something sexual. I thought it was something really bad. That's pathetic. What was she thinking? It must be some sort of vendetta. Do you think it's too much for CBB to have shown this? Or is this where reality TV actually excels in reflecting and refracting? No, I, I think this is lazy reality TV. I think good reality TV is by its nature about reality. It shouldn't be generating entertainment from fake incidents and total lies. 
and then an investigation into who is telling the truth and who isn't. But this was the reality. This was a real situation with real people. Don't don't they have a duty by dint of their medium to show the true colours of a person? I mean, ostensibly, that is what these contestants have signed up for. Wouldn't it be, I don't know, hypocrisy to edit otherwise? Sure, but I don't think... I don't, I don't know why she was seen as fit to appear in a medium as ruthless as the Big Brother house in the first place. She's obviously not in a great place. Like, happy people don't do things like that. She's mentioned that she's a victim of domestic violence. I wonder how it's affected her now. To me, it feels like lazy and irresponsible casting to use a person like that to generate story. Well, she's an actor, so concealing and revealing parts of her personality or things is is her trade. So, you know, passing a psych test might not be might not be that surprising perhaps she's able to conceal those manipulative or or unsound or traumatized parts of her character you know plenty of people as i said who have worked with her knew about those traits um she's a successful jobbing actor i wonder how much they knew of her backstory or that they would even generate a story by casting her I think I think they have a duty to show that when it now it has happened. I think it's shocking and disappointing, but I don't criticize the producers for showing it. That said, you know, this is a genre that you have worked in, you know more about production and televisual storytelling than me. So you're coming at it from a different point of view, which which I think is really good. Yeah, I think I just recognize it as uh, it's not even that I'm I'm condemning them for the way that they handled it because as you said it's it's about following as much reality as as they can but for me this screams like bad planning and producing of a show to have to generate a story from something as traumatic as this well Roxanne has now become a pantomime villain you know the tabloid headline saying she's quit show business and celebrity after celebrity claiming that she's toxic watching her fall has not been comfortable I read on Twitter and I think this is a really good way of putting it Roxanne Pallet deserves to be criticised not crucified you wrote recently Dolly we shouldn't be looking to delete people and I think we're watching a 35 year old get deleted at the moment via public discourse yeah and it, it just can't happen people have to continue to exist after mistakes she's now actually calling herself the most hated woman in Britain I've never seen so many celebrities so quick to comment on the shortcomings of another celebrity it just doesn't normally happen and you you have to wonder if there were a lot of people who had had felt like she behaved very badly over the years one of her co-stars Daniel Brockelblank wrote finally the public are privy to what those of us that were unfortunate enough to work with her in the past already knew which does feed back to what you say Dolly how on earth did she get to this platform if so many people were so Mm. utterly terrified and traumatised by her behaviour. And there's a lot of gleeful schadenfreude here. And you know what? I kind of understand that. If you've worked with someone who you think is totally awful, seeing them get their comeuppance must be satisfying. Mm. Um, I I wish this wasn't the case, but it's an inevitable human response. Reading all the other celebrities pile in gives a certain frisson to this story. All too often when we read celebrity gossip, it's boring and baseless. And this tale has been intimately recanted. We've seen it via cameras, so we can see the whole tale unfold for ourselves. We have seen via the direct words from those who know her. It feels meta and dystopian that, like, in the future all false accusations could be revealed like this by cameras filming us and from tweets by those that know her, i.e. all through technology. You know, technology could become the ultimate 
crime solver. In her interview with Emma Willis, Roxanne said, I need to go away and think about why I used humour when something actually really bothered me in my mind. And I think it's important to remember that, that she might not have been doing any of this as a stunt, that Mm. something triggered in her a response that at first she felt the need to laugh off and then she felt the need to exacerbate into something that didn't happen and ultimately all of these constructions that she created happened as you say for a reason yeah I feel uncomfortable about some sort of mass public slaying of this woman I mean we always feel uncomfortable about mass public slayings yeah I think it seems the best thing she could do as she mentioned now is just try to delete her public existence and retreat from the public eye and seek help much for listening to the hilo you can tweet us at the hilo show you can email us the hilo show at gmail.com where there is a backlog of summer missives <laughs> and dj cj i'm going to request an aretha song to play us out because while we were away aretha franklin passed away and i was so so sad that we didn't get to commemorate her and her beautiful music on this podcast it's good to be back bye-bye we'll see you next week bye you may Change.